Thanks for joining us. You're listening to the Life Church Podcast. In these episodes, you will hear encouraging messages from our weekend services. If you'd like to know more about us, watch a live stream, or find the closest Eastern Iowa campus near you, go to lifechurchnow.org. Good morning, Life Church. Welcome. It's great to see you here today. You may have noticed that I am not Pastor Rich. My name is Amy, and I'm the Foundations and Care Director here at Life Church, have been for about a year now, and I'm very excited to be able to share with you today. I would like to tell you a story about hope. Um, you may or may not know that before I married my husband, moved to Boston, and then eventually to Iowa, I was a missionary for six years in a couple different parts of Mexico and on the south side of Chicago. And I first was stationed in a city called Monterrey. Monterrey is um, in the northern state of Nuevo León, only about three hours south of the border of McAllen, Texas. And preparing to become a missionary, actually leaving for the mission field is kind of a long, involved process. So while I was doing that, a couple friends and I decided that we were going to drive to Monterey. I was moving there, but I had never been there. They both had. Um, we all worked at a church together in Kansas City. I'm from Kansas City. Go Chiefs. Chiefs fans? All right. Go Chiefs. I'm from Kansas City. Anyway, we all worked together at a church in Kansas City, and we decided that we were just going to hop in my dad's Jeep, leave after church on Sunday, power through all night long, and watch the sunrise in Mexico. It takes about 20 hours to get from Kansas City to Monterey, all the way through Kansas, Oklahoma, and Texas. So we're like, we're just going to stop at every Starbucks along the way. It's going to be great. By the way, it can't be done. There are too many Starbuckses. We, we quit at three because our budgets would not allow it. Anyway, it was just after midnight, February 9th, 2009, just south of Austin, Texas. My friend Alicia was sleeping in the back seat. My friend Jeff was driving and I was in the passenger seat. We were listening to Johnny Cash on his iPod. Not an iPad, mind you, an iPod. This was back in the day and we thought we were really cool. The um, highway was pretty abandoned by this time after midnight. And I remember thinking that the headlights in front of us looked funny. That was the last thought I had before they hit us head on. They were not headlights. They were not taillights. They were headlights. Um, both the cars were going over 70 miles an hour when we hit. I remember the force of it, the violence of it. It seemed like such a violent act to me. I can still feel it. Standing here in front of you 14 years later, I can feel the way it felt. I remember spinning for what seemed like an eternity and coming to a stop on the edge of the highway. My friends had both passed out. I did not, and so I remember yelling their names, trying to get them to answer me to see if they were okay. I remember um, a good Samaritan who just happened to be driving by, saw the accident, and stopped to help us. Um, he got my friend Alicia and I out of the car. It was leaking gas, and he thought that it might explode. Jeff was trapped, but he got Alicia and I out of the car. I remember um, laying on the side of the road waiting for the ambulance. Um, I remember calling my friend Jeff's wife while the firemen cut him out of the car calling my sleeping parents. 
Um, I remember learning that the man who hit us had a blood alcohol level several times over the legal limit, and that this particular stretch of highway, I-35 south of Austin, is well known as one of the most dangerous in the country because of the number of establishments in the area without the practice of cutting off inebriated people. I remember learning that the man who hit us died on impact. Um, and that my friends and I were eventually gonna be okay. We're all okay, just to not keep you in suspense. All three of us had concussions and broken ribs. We were in bad shape, but we are all now married, have little kids, and working in ministry. So let me put your mind at rest. But I also remember the bridge of a song playing over and over and over again all through this experience. I don't wanna say it was in my head because I could hear it. I could physically hear it and I know it wasn't on the radio because Johnny Cash was playing on the radio. But I could, I could hear it and it was, um, it's not a song that we really sing anymore but it was popular um, at that time. You might remember it, it's called Jesus Messiah. It's a Chris Tomlin song. It's a good song, we just don't sing it anymore. But anyway, the bridge goes, I'm gonna sing it for you today. The bridge goes, all our hope is in you. All our hope is in you. All the glory to you, God, the light of the world. Do you guys remember this song? Okay, good, then you can sing it with me. Let's do it again. If you're watching online, sing it anyway. Sing it in your living room, okay? No pressure, this is a safe space. All our hope is in you. All our hope is in you. All the glory to you, God, the light of the world. And it didn't strike me as odd until later that I could hear this song audibly over and over and over again all through this experience, it seemed like a normal part of what I was going through. If, any part, if anything I was going through was normal. So I didn't realize until later that um, it was God helping me through such a terrifying moment in my life and in the aftermath of it as well to remember where my hope really lies. I think before the accident, I thought that hope in Christ meant nothing bad would really ever happen, right? That's clearly not right. I have a master's in biblical studies. I should have known better, but I didn't. Um, but where my hope really lies and where it has to lie, because even with things like, we have a picture of the car. Can we show the picture? Of the, yeah, that's, that's my dad's car um, afterwards. He took that when he came down to help us. So even with things like cars with high safety ratings, we could have been in my tiny little car instead of my dad's Jeep. Even with airbags, this, one, this car had both front and side. They all went off with seat belts, please wear your seat belt. And there are a hundred other little things that could have been slightly different, but even with all of those, there is no logical explanation why my friends and I survived this accident. And that's according to the state trooper who, who came to the hospital with us. But all right and reason, all three of our lives should have ended there on the highway that night. Um, I went to see a counselor a few months later as a prerequisite for going to the mission field. And I was just asking him, you know, were the things I was experiencing normal? Like I was having these PTSD things, right? Like loud noises for a while really bothered me. Or I kept having dreams for a long time that I was being shot, which had nothing to do with what I had experienced. But so I was asking him, like, is this normal for someone who has 
um, survived an accident like I did and remembers it? And he said, no, because there is no one who's survived an accident like this and remembers it. So it was not very long after that that I got this word hope tattooed on my wrist because I did not want to forget where my hope lies and I wanted it to be a testimony to the people around me. And it has been. Um, People ask me about it all the time, especially when I eventually ended up in Oaxaca, Mexico, very rural, traditional, small town. The only people anyone there knew with a tattoo, they got that tattoo in prison. Like people asked me about it all the time. Um, And so I have had many opportunities to share um, over the past 14 years, but I had gotten a little mixed up, right? Grateful to be alive as I was. Before the accident, I thought that hope in Christ meant nothing bad would ever happen. That clearly wasn't right. So after the accident, I started thinking, okay, well, bad things, sure, but hope in Christ means that we'll never be as bad as it could have been. Hope in Christ means, yeah, bad things might happen, you might get banged up, but you'll survive. You'll come out okay on the other side. You guys, that's not right. The Bible does not promise us that. Um, I told you that these, these two and I were good friends because we worked together at a church. And so sometimes we were called upon to help with goings on at the church. And just a few weeks after the accident, I can't recall exactly how long, but I know we were all still on crutches and going to physical therapy, so it wasn't very long. We were called on to help at a funeral at our church for a young man, 16 years old, who had died in a car accident the weekend earlier. He went to the same high school that I graduated from. And he wasn't making bad life choices. He was just young and it was late. And he hit a light pole really hard and he didn't make it. And I, still on my crutches, was standing there holding the door open for his mom when she entered the church for her son's funeral. What must she have been thinking? I'm sure she wasn't thinking about me at all. She had a lot else going on, but the cruel irony of the situation did not escape me. I just had it so wrong that hope in Christ meant we would always survive the accident. You guys, none of us are getting out of here alive. Where was Christ's hope for her, for her son? What about for the man who hit us? He had a wife and two kids and he didn't make it. What was, what was hope in Christ for him, for them? I don't know why God chooses to miraculously rescue some people in this life and not others. I will not know this side of eternity, but I do know that hope in Christ does not mean what I once thought it did. So then what does it mean? Well, when we use the word hope, we might be talking about one of two different things, right? Christian hope, our hope in Christ, and the world's hope, which, which really means I hope so. I hope the Chiefs win the Super Bowl today. I hope that after I eat all the Super Bowl snacks, I can still fit into my jeans tomorrow. I hope that it doesn't snow anymore. I hope the cute boy asks me out, whatever it might be. I hope someone I love is healed. And these aren't bad things, but it's a wish. It's a desire. It's nothing more than that. It's not necessarily based in any kind of reality. In fact, it's probably not, or we would use a different word. Hope against hope is a phrase that we use, right? Like clinging to a shred of a possibility. Um, I told you that I have two crazy little girls and they are either best friends or worst enemies at all times. It's either, I love you so much, you're the best sister in the world, give me a hug, or 
and I heard this this week, I'm going to tear your face off and eat it. In fact, while I was preaching at 8.30, I was saying this very thing, and Christy Hefner was sitting right back there, and she told me later that at the very time I was saying this, my four-year-old was biting my six-year-old, and I got an incident report about it after. So when I say, I hope the girls are being good tonight and not causing any drama, I know that that is not necessarily rooted in any kind of realistic expectation whatsoever. I just hope so, right? But when I say... I have hope that I'm going to see my parents again, I mean something very different. I lost my dad just this past September, and I lost my mom five years ago, right before we moved to Iowa. So when I say I have hope that I'm going to see them again in glory, I don't mean I hope so. I mean, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Amen. Pastor and author Tim Keller writes that Christian hope is uniquely reasonable, full, realistic, and effective. It is reasonable, full, realistic, and effective. It's reasonable. It has a basis in fact. Faith also, yes. We haven't yet seen the fullness of our hope, but there's fact involved. There's logic. There's evidence from the Bible, from my life, and from the lives of people around me, and it's reasonable to have this hope. It's also full. It's not lacking anything. It's complete. There's a satisfaction of a need that has been satisfied. Um, 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4 talks about a living hope when he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Our hope is full. Our hope is living. And it can't die because it already did and it came back to life. Our hope is full. It's also realistic. It's rational. It's sensible. It makes sense to have it. And, and that's because it's a promise made by the one who keeps his promises. It's not crazy, it's realistic. It's also effective, and this is my favorite one. Our hope is effective, it's useful, it's relevant. It's not sitting on a shelf gathering dust, it's dynamic. It's living in the form of a resurrected Jesus Christ. Our hope is purposeful, it has a job to do, and luckily our hope is very good at its job. It's effective, okay? The um, ancient Greek struggles a little bit to have the right word for this hope that the biblical writers, that the New Testament writers were talking about. There wasn't really a word in ancient Greek for this kind of hope, a, a different hope, a living hope. And so the Bible uses the word, the Greek word elpis or elpiso, elpis the noun, elpiso the verb. And um, interestingly, it's the same word that Aristotle used centuries later when he wrote down the myth of Pandora not Pandora, the streaming service, the ancient myth of Pandora. She's an Eve-type figure, right? She, um, she's given a box. She's told not to open it. Of course she does. And she lets out all this horrible stuff on the world, war, famine, disease. And she gets the lid back on the box. There's one thing left at the bottom. It's hope. It's in there, but it's trapped in the box. Our hope isn't trapped in a box but it's the same word that they used in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, there were two different words um, 
which I will not butcher for you now, but um, biblical Hebrew had a word for a hope for now, a hope for today, and a hope for like a long-term, more eschatological, eternal kind of hope. Um, both of which are translated in our Old Testaments as hope or occasionally as trust. Trust and hope go hand in hand, don't they? Because we have this hope as a result of our trust in God. Not a blind trust, but a trust and a hope that remembers what God has done for us. It remembers um, the Hebrews coming out of Egypt in the Red Sea parting. It remembers the walls of Jericho falling down. It remembers the empty tomb. It remembers what God has done in my own life. Um, our, Our living hope remembers. Our hope also waits. Hope in Christ has an element of waiting, doesn't it? Waiting for that ultimate fulfillment. Peter and the biblical writers believed that our hope is anchored to an event, that event being the resurrection of Jesus. And because of this event, our hope, our living hope is that we too will be resurrected. We will see the new heaven and the new earth. We will be there for the long-awaited return of our Savior when he will wipe every tear from our eyes and death will be no more and mourning and crying and pain will be no more for the first things have passed away. And God's kingdom will come in fullness and his will will be done all the time on the new earth as it already is in heaven. This is our living hope. If you feel like you're not sure that you've ever experienced this living hope that I'm talking about, if you haven't yet started a relationship with Jesus Christ, the time is now. If you've been waiting for a sign, sign. This is it. Jesus Christ came to die for your sins. He took them on himself. He was resurrected from the dead and he's seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And he's coming back for us. It's not only reasonable, full, realistic, and effective to hope so, it's real and it's true. And so we wait and we remember. But while we wait and we remember, what are we to do? Well, the Bible tells us exactly what we should do. We have a job to do as well. It's why we're here. And the devil wants nothing more than to quench your hope, to crush it, and keep you from doing that job. So let's not let him. Let me set the scene for you. We talked earlier about 1 Peter chapter 1. Now we're going to move to chapter 3. Um, Peter is my favorite New Testament writer. I know you're not supposed to have favorites, but I don't care. Peter's my favorite. Um, He was passionate, but he was rash. He was always cutting people's ears off, you know? Like, Peter did not think before he spoke and acted, and I relate to that. Um, He stopped looking at Jesus, and he was sinking in the water, but he got out of the boat. And, yeah, he denied Jesus three times during his trial, but he's also the only one who was still there. I feel like Peter and I will be good friends someday. Anyway, Peter writes from Rome under Emperor Nero, who was, like, top-tier crazy. Nero murdered his own mother, his own wife, and his own brother. He set the fire of the great fire of Rome himself and used Christians as a scapegoat and had them burned alive for it. He would eventually um, be the cause of Peter's death, Peter himself. Uh, Peter was sentenced to crucifixion, and tradition says that he requested to be crucified upside down because he deemed himself unworthy to die in the same way as Jesus. 
But Nero would ultimately cause Peter's death and his own death. Nero committed suicide years later in exile. So this is the Rome Peter writes from. And he's writing to Gentile Christians throughout Asia Minor, persecuted Gentile Christians throughout Asia Minor. These are Gentiles now, so not Jewish people who are very familiar with the stories of God's faithfulness and his trustworthiness and his hope from the Old Testament. These are new Christians, probably new even to the idea of one God. The, the resurrection had only happened about 25 years earlier. And um, they'd heard the news of the risen Christ as it spread and they believed it. And now they're being severely persecuted for it burned alive, fed alive to wild animals. Every just horrific and awful thing that you can think of, they were experiencing it, okay? And so into this, Peter writes, beginning, um, chapter three, beginning in verse eight. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. He's quoting Psalm 34 here. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give reason for the hope that you have. Are you prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have? We sang um, a song at the beginning of the service. We're gonna sing it again here in just a few minutes. Um, we sing the cooler, modernized version now, but the original old school version, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, was, um, was written by a na man named Edward Moat. I think we have a picture of Edward. Yep, this is Edward Moat. He wrote the original version, on Christ the solid rock I stand. You might've heard it, anyway. He wrote that song in the 1800s. Um, neglected and abandoned by his parents, Edward Moat grew up on the streets, in his own words, with no idea who God was, until he was 18, and that's when he met Jesus. And no matter how much research I did, I couldn't find out exactly how that happened. And I imagine it was because there was nothing extraordinary about it at all. But some regular person, like you and like me, that had this living hope in Christ, told Edward Moat about it and changed his life. Anyway, Edward became a Christian at 18 and he wrote this song in one morning on his way to work as a cabinet maker. Um, he would later go on to be a pastor and preacher for 55 years and see a great revival in his community because he could not keep to himself the source of his hope. 
will you? We're not being persecuted like the Christians Peter was writing to, but we all are walking around in a world that is desperately in need of hope. There are mass shootings every day in the news. The footage of the earthquake is just horrendously sad. There is war and disease and famine. There is an ever-increasing political divide and an ever-increasing um, cost of living. And the people around you who do not have Jesus will wonder if they haven't already why you react differently to the stresses of this life. So what will you tell them? What answer will you give? Will you brush it off? Will you change the subject? Will you hope they don't ask? Or will you, like Edward Mote, declare, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I wholly trust in his name. It is a word that our world desperately needs. They need the hope that we have. Let's not keep it to ourselves. I can almost guarantee that if you take just a moment to think, you will, you will come to mind, it will come to mind at least one person in your life that needs to hear about this living hope. And I'm speaking to myself as much as anyone here. In fact, in the in the course of writing this sermon, God brought to my mind five people in my life that desperately need to hear about the living hope that I have. Let's ask God to give us opportunities and moments to share, and then let's be prepared to do it. Would you stand with me? Guys, we're going to have prayer teams on the left and on the right after we close here. If you started a Jesus with journey today, a journey with Jesus today, Will you please let us pray for you? Or if God has brought to mind prodding you, the people that you need to share um, your hope with, will you let us pray with you for that too? Whatever it might be, we wanna pray with you. So please don't hesitate. Um, I'm gonna conclude with this. Sarah Bessie is one of my favorite Christian authors and she um, writes a blog. This quote is from... Um, a blog that she wrote about the state of Christian hope in a post-pandemic world. And she says, the hope we have now is more of a practice and a discipline and a rooted stubbornness about the faithfulness of God in the midst. It's the hope of the stubborn and undeterred and unembarrassable and unbotherable. It's the hope of the stubborn and undeterred and unembarrassable and unbotherable. Jesus, thank you for this living hope that we have. Thank you for the hope that we can have in you. I so desperately want to be stubborn and undeterred and unembarrassable and unbotherable in your name. Not so that I can be great, but so that you can be great, Jesus. Not to make life church great, but to make your name great. Will you please give us opportunities to share your hope with the people around us and give us the words to say, God, so that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In Jesus' name, amen.